Episode 4, Blood is Spilt. Kilfawn Hall, 14th of November, 1925. My dearest Elizabeth, thank you for your concerns in your last letter. Do not worry, I am in fine health, undeterred by the shadow of this uncanny house or of the outmoded gunmen who haunt the valley. That is a strange coincidence, though, that this Roland chap is an archaeologist, his interests so aligned to yours and your father's. And from your lack of description of a wife and family, is he renting the whole place on his own? I am not aware of this sunray treatment he has mentioned. Please do be careful. I know what you are like when you're in the grip of one of your sudden enthusiasms. In a sympathetic occurrence, I too have met an archaeologist, well, strictly speaking, an historian, George and I took the horses out for an early stroll this morning. The chestnut has grown used to me and has a most elegant ride. The weather was in a rare good mood, with the low sun shining warmly on us despite the winter chill in the air. We were up in the narrow lanes above the valley, the knockmill downs to the north and the sea in the distance to the south. A young gentleman stepped off the road to let us pass and we stopped to say hello. It turns out he is a vagabond historian. A sort of inverse wandering minstrel, more interested in hearing stories than telling them. His name is Alex Harrison, over from Oxford University, and a well-spoken young man. I'm mapping out the remains of the ancients in this county and collecting folk tales associated with them for my thesis before they all disappear through progress, he said, though I see little evidence of that in the area. I think the greater danger comes from the daily march to the boats, taking emigrants to Britain and the United States. Even here in Kilfone Village there are empty houses, all boarded up and sad and lonely looking. George was intrigued at this and asked, We found one of those ancient monuments the other day in a remote part of the estate. Nobody seems to know anything of it, or won't say if they do. Sounds like it'd be right up your street, Mr Harrison. The historian demurred. His funds were up, and he was in fact preparing to set sail for home. Well, George was having none of that. I insist that you come stay at the hall. We've more than enough room. I think you'll find the company agreeable. I'm very keen to know what mysteries lie within the bounds of my estate. He didn't take much convincing. I imagine the lodgings a young academic can find around here are limited. We agreed that a car would be sent for him in the evening and rode on. I'm quite agreeable with this turn of events. It would be good to have an Oxford man to talk to. I know we have Mr. Simmons, but there's only so much gardening I can take. George is not the bookish type. Something else I definitely want to ask Mr. Harrison about are these Triskelions. It was soon after I first saw the patron of the gardens that I realised the triple spiral motif is discreetly everywhere in the house. It is carved into the lintels of doors and windows and at regular spacings under the eaves. Inside the house it is more random. Some appear part of the design, say engraved into a stone mantelpiece, but others take one by surprise. Crude carvings, for example, in exposed beams in the servant's stairwell. George dislikes them for the evident superstition they are. The former ones are part of the house's fabric and will stay, but he's encouraged the workmen to get rid of the more obvious rustic ones. What they mean I do not know, but they remind me of the witch's marks you sometimes see in old buildings in England, 
Though from what I can remember of the ones you showed me, that time on the Norfolk Broads, those apertaics look more like flowers than spirals. Whoever built the house was obsessed with them anyway. Unhealthily so, if you ask me. That kind of obsession can lead a man into dangerous places, one tiny step at a time. I have written before that the south wing and centre of the house are mostly ship-shape and watertight, while the north wing is still in a state of major disrepair. If you stand in the great front lawn amid its emerging spiral maze and face the house, the symmetrical wings, one ruined and one in good repair, are in opposition, confronting each other as if in a challenge between past and future. I accompanied George on an inspection of the works after we'd returned and seen to the horses. One enters Kilfone Hall through a grand front door to be greeted by the wide tall entrance hall that is a most unusual feature. The hall extends the height of the house and the stairs wrap around it. There is a large skylight in the centre of the ceiling that, at this time of year, just lets in a dim light. The door from the hall into the north wing is kept locked to keep workmen's boots off the new floors and rugs, so we enter through a pair of veranda doors at the rear of the north wing. The front of the house is still bathed in late sunshine, but the low winter sun is already setting by the time it comes round to this side, and the air was chill and dank. Floors here were variously being taken up or put down by workmen, and the electricians were running their wires everywhere. All rooms are to be lit electrically, replacing the old gas mantles. There is something indescribably sad about a house reduced to its components, like a wounded animal with its innards exposed. Despite the bustle of the workers, this part of the house has a melancholic air. Great diseased blooms of damp spread across the walls, and long strips of wallpaper like peeling skin hung mournfully. Missing plaster on the walls display the underlying pale laths like bony ribs. The ubiquitous damp cold was the sort that seeps quietly and deeply into your very core. The design of the north wing is rather peculiar, hosting to my surprise a large reception room that spans most of the length of the ground floor, with a monumental stone fireplace in the north wall as its centrepiece. The massive hearthstone is crudely finished, but the mantelpiece itself is, unsurprisingly, heavily inscribed with elegant triskelions. George tells me that the mantelpiece is carved from Kilkenny limestone, and a most striking rock it is too. Beams of sunlight came in at a narrow angle through the western windows and caught the dust raised by the works, while the eastern windows were dark and may as well have looked out onto a different world. A trio of workers were over by the fireplace, one awkwardly high in a ladder doing something to expose wiring. Some floorboards were missing near them, and I took the opportunity to hunker down on my knees and examine the grubby hidden spaces now exposed. Sure enough, it did not take me long to find a triskelion, crudely carved in a joist. I ran my finger along the curves, tracing out the spirals, and feeling the roughness of the wood underneath my finger. At that same moment, the elaborate chandelier set high in the ceiling blazed bright to fill the room with sudden light and the darkness fled from the floor space I was examining. Modernity chasing out the old shadows that linger still. A fanciful notion, I know. I could see the foreman over by the light switch. This house lends itself to them, to the idea that it is watching you. I stood up and dusted my knees off. The chandelier was emitting a low sizzling noise, and I could smell a faint note of burning. The lights were flickering. No, they were pulsing like a heartbeat. 
For a moment, everything stopped. The chandelier bloomed impossibly bright and then extinguished, leaving my eyes dazzled with strange afterimages. There was a sudden frightened cry, and I half saw and half sensed something heavy come flying into me and throw us both to the ground in a tangle. In confusion, I shoved my attacker away hard. As my eyes cleared, I realised that it was the electrician from the ladder, a middle-aged balding fellow who was trying to disentangle himself rather than attack me. Well, I was still quite shaken, especially after my recent adventures with the search squad. He sat up groggily, and in the dim light I noticed blood in his hair and more on the hearthstone where he must have hit it. My left hand stung with a pinprick from which blood beaded slowly. Being still at near eye level with the hearthstone, I could see it was countersunk. The workman had removed whatever decorative panel once covered it, but had clearly missed some of the retaining nails at the edges. What the bloody hell do you think you're doing? A voice shouted. George, of course, red with anger. I'm sorry, sir, said the electrician, turning to me, half in shadow. Someone pushed me. No, they bloody didn't, roared George. I saw you jump. One of the men still holding the ladder intervened. Now, sir, James Foley is a good man and there's no need to be accusing him. He's just confused in that bash in the head he took. I helped Foley up. He actually thanked me for breaking his fall. The chandelier pulsed and buzzed with flickering light, throwing strange shadows, and then abruptly came back on full, bathing us in a strong blaze. Foley had a glazed look to him, and I said to his colleague to get him home and get the wound seen to. George was harumphing in the background, but said no more. That left one man still holding the ladder and looking ready to bolt. Were you not keeping the ladder secure? I asked. We were as secure as houses, I swear. He crossed himself. Jim just flew off that ladder, like he'd been pushed hard. George said in a loud voice, The man obviously electrocuted himself. Everybody back to work, and please be careful. He grabbed me by the arm. Come on, old boy, let's retreat to the games room and leave them to it. We're only distracting them. There he poured his boat a glass of claret while I cleaned my hand with my handkerchief. Don't worry, it was only a small stab wound on the palm of my hand. I'd asked the maid to see if there was any formaldehyde in the house to clean it out. I have no desire to get lockjaw from a rusty nail. George was still fuming and preoccupied. Spill it, man, I said. What's got you so wound up? He flopped into an armchair and savagely attacked the fire with a poker. Hell, John, you're as bad as them with your fixation and those creepy carvings. Having beaten the fire into submission, he slumped back in his chair and ran his hand through his sandy hair. His cheeks still flushed, whether from the heat or anger, I couldn't tell. This isn't the first time this has supposedly happened, George said. A maid claimed she'd been pushed and nearly fallen down the stairs in the north wing. When I heard, I of course said, tell me what blaggard did that and I'll run them off. She says there was no one there but someone still pushed her. I assumed she was covering for her clumsiness and told her to stop making up stories and that'd be the end of it. The work's behind schedule as it is, John. The last thing I need is that lot either refusing to work because they decided the place is haunted or, more likely, them trying it on with that guff to get a bit of compensation. You saw that chap just now. There was no one near him to push. Complete cobswallop. Got careless and zapped himself. George's good mood of earlier was gone and he stared morosely into the fire. It was the first he'd mentioned to me of delays and problems with the renovations. Has he mentioned this to you or to your mother?
I retreated to the top floor room I've appropriated as my den to smoke my pipe in peace. The dark was drawing in around the house. The light that spilled from its windows seemed listless and trapped by the mist that seeped from the ground and not to travel as far as it should. From my high vantage point, I should have been able to see the friendly lights of other houses. But today, all was a dim, encroaching, isolating darkness, shadowing even the triskelions that are slowly re-emerging from the ruins of the garden under Mr. Simmons' supervision. The day's events have left me unsettled and enervated. I admit also to dreading sleep somewhat, as my dreams become more violent with each passing night and I wake louder than sweat. The thought that this house is somehow strange does not right now seem so far-fetched to me. If there are matters of pertinent interest in your father's papers, I would gladly know of them. There's been no more sign either of the missing boy or hounds, and most have given up hope of them being found alive. They have just disappeared. I had expected to be asleep as soon as my head hit the pillow. Instead, I found myself thinking on the disappearance of the two dogs. In my mind's eye, I pictured that dank spinny again, rain dripping from the bare branches of the thin trees, our shouts the only other sound. It was as if the land had gobbled them up because they dared enter that stand of trees in the valley behind. And then, rising into my mind was the mound, except it throbbed with some eldritch heartbeat that was twinned with an aching pulse in my injured hand. It watched me with an intent that was malicious. It had seen me. I opened my eyes at that point. It did not feel like I was waking up, but I must have been. I cannot help but wonder if that lost boy did also stumble over the mound. If he has friends, it might be a question for them. I slept again then, and woke later in the night, my heart pounding. I had dreamed of consuming fire, and I imagined that I could smell beside me the sulphur of a just-struck match. That thought brought back to mind the strange afterimage I had seen when I was dazzled by the chandelier. Instead of the shapeless blob of negative light one would expect, it had seemed to be in the form of a crooked man of all things, and moving. It had been standing behind the electrician, Mr. Foley, as if whispering in his ear, when it finally faded from my eyesight. I wish you were here, Elizabeth. Know that I am thinking of you. George has a telephone installed, but it does not work most of the time. I tried calling you on the contraption, but instead of the operator, all I got was an eerie, ghostly moaning on the wire. A man is due down from Dublin next week to try and trace the fault. Let me know if you find anything of interest in your father's papers. And of course, it would be perfect if it was you who carried them to me. I hope to see you soon. All my love, John. November 1925. 
John Ross, Kilfawn Hall, Waterford. Have gone to London for treatment. Stop. Staying, Cousin Celia. Stop. Will write soon. Stop. Love, Elizabeth. enjoyed what you've just listened to, please subscribe, review or share to help us flourish.